Hi there, you're listening to the Fixed Plasm Podcast. This is a special episode of a live recording of the panel How to Turn Your Favourite Fiction into Games, given at Dragon Meet on the 2nd of December, featuring Becky Anderson, Josh Fox, Paul Michener and Elizabeth Lovegrove. Here we go. Thank you for coming along uh, to today's panel on turning your favourite fiction into games. So, have you ever wondered about running a game based on your favourite book, TV show or similar, but you don't know where to start? Do you replicate the entire plot, lift some characters or themes and not others, tell a different story in the same world, or just mimic the atmosphere? We have a team of experts here, experts, who are going to tell you how to do it. Uh, we are the Fictor Person podcast. Um, you might have been expecting also Ralph Lovegrove and Mo Hawker to be here, but unfortunately they had to uh, duck out. So we have brought in a very important substitution um, who I'll let introduce himself shortly. But I am Becky Allison. I am the award-winning designer. I still can't get used to saying that. I am the award-winning designer of the game When the Dark is Gone and also uh, the, I'm co-designer of Lovecraft Desk which kickstarted a couple of years ago, and I'm one half of Black Armada Publishing. Oh gosh, I have run many, many games based on books over my life, in other people's systems, in my systems, but my favourite authors to run uh, in, oh, to run games in the worlds of are Roger Zelazny, H.P. Lovecraft, and anybody who writes anything about sexy werewolves. <laughs> so... Josh, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Josh Fox. Uh, you might have heard of me as the co-author of Lovecraft Desk. Uh, I'm also the winner of the Three Forged game, <clears throat> game Design Competition, and I write uh, blog articles, weird little games, and gaming resources on blackarmada.com. Uh, this is our substitute, our honourable substitute, Paul Mitchner. Okay, so I'm I'm Paul. I haven't won any awards. <laughs> But I'm the, I'm the writer of Age of Arthur, Hunters of Alexandria, Starfall, and I've written bits and pieces for Call of Cthulhu, Mindjammer, Mithras, and Open Quest. And last but not least, there's Lovegrave. Um, I also have trouble describing myself as an award-winning game designer, but nevertheless, that's what I am. Um, my game, Rise and Fall, is based on dystopian fiction. Um, I've also written games based on books by Diana Wynne Jones, Garth Nix, uh, J.K. Rowling and various others. Cool. cool. So I was going to start with opening the obvious question to the panel of <coughs> you've got a book that you love, it fires your imagination, it makes you feel excited, uh, where do you start with that? How do you even start turning that into a game? Um, do you want to kick off Paul? Okay, uh, sure. Ask everybody. Okay, so I mean what I think of in this context is there's two levels you need to go at. So one level is there's always cool, funky, surface stuff going on. If it's a science fiction novel, you want to be able to have some idea of the tech, for example. On the other hand, there is also, and this is one thing you really want to get at, some deeper themes in any book worthy of the name. And that's something you want to think about, want to think about how that is drawn out, and last but not least, you also think want to think about what sort of characters there are in the game based on this fiction. Okay, I think I'll stop there for now. Cool, cool. Josh, have you got anything you want to add to that? Okay, so I've got a similar sort of breakdown to Paul, but it's a little bit different, so I will spell it out. I have divided it into what I call the three S's, 
I'm not going to make a, a London uh, British Transport Police joke here. Um, the three S's are setting, situation, and sensation. So setting is about the characters, the locations, and the sort of colourful elements that you find in the fiction. The situation is kind of what's happening, what kind of thing is going to happen to people in your game, what kind of thing are they going to do. And sensation is about how does it feel? Does it feel like uh, the, the the fiction? Does it? Do you feel like you're in that fiction? Um, so, I, what you know? What, what if you're going to write a game based on a book? I'd be asking myself which of those things is it that I'm really interested in from this piece of fiction, and then use that as your lodestar for design from that point forward. Liz, so. Uh rather than taking the kind of general approach that these two have taken my take on this is to really drill into what it is that you're specifically interested in in the book um, so one of my kind of games that's percolating in the back of my head at the moment is a game based on ancillary justice the unlucky book um, and obviously there's lots and lots of different games you could write out to that you could write something with big spaceships powered by AIs with lots of ancillaries. You could write something about conquest. But the thing that really gets me about that book and the thing that I really want to replicate in a game is the structure of the book, the fact that at the same time we see what happens leading up to the big explosion and what happens kind of following on from the big explosion. We've got those kind of interleaved. And as we're going through the book, we don't completely know what happened around the big explosion. We kind of gradually piece it together as we get towards it. So that's that's kind of the, the thing that I want to take out of Ancillary Justice. And once I've got that out of it, it almost doesn't matter whether there are spaceships or what the world is like, whether we've got ancillaries, um, the politics, the culture, all of that. that. That's what I'm drawing from that book in particular. Uh, and for different books, I draw different things out rather than rather than necessarily try to replicate the whole feel of things. So, Liz, would you say that you think there's a link here between role-playing games, role-playing game design in general, and am I allowed to say fanfic? <laughs> am I allowed to say fanfic? I think you're allowed to say fanfic. <laughs> okay, sure. I'm going to say fanfic. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think there is. Um, and the kind of most of the kind of fanfic that people write and most of the kind of games that people run based on, um, based on books tend to take the setting quite wholesale, uh, some of the atmosphere, and often a very similar sort of plot. Or if you're lucky enough to have players who haven't read the book, possibly the same plot, which is what I did with the game I ran based on the Storm Constantine Raythu books. None of the players had read the book. So my co-GM and I just basically rewrote some of the plot of the book, and, and that was fine. We just lifted it wholesale. Uh, obviously, that bit wouldn't work with fan fiction, but I think the fact that you're taking different things um, from the book and maybe just pulling in a hook and expanding on that to make something new and a bit different that still has links back to the original is definitely a common thing. In fact, I'd probably argue that role-playing games based on books are themselves a form of fan fiction. But then I'm prone to arguing that everything's a form of fan fiction, so that doesn't I tend to argue be... that role-playing a hobby is itself fan fiction. Yeah. Whether we like it or not. Yeah, maybe. I think so. <clears throat> um, I did want to come back to something, um, Paul, that you said earlier okay. on, though. Um, and I liked what you did when you talked about drawing out the themes and looking at the setting and things like that. And I think that one of the things that <clears throat> is perhaps a little bit daunting about the idea of taking your favourite novel, particularly if it's something written by Guy Gavril Kay and right. just the like, is how do you... Where do you even start when you have such a vast setting? 
where do you start kind of trying to pull that into a game? I mean, it, is it just your 10-year project heartbreaker or is there, are there some ch- tricks around that? Okay, so, I mean, in terms of tricks you could use, think, first of all, in terms of what bit of the setting you're taking, think, first of all, about characters. What sort of characters you're saying will tell you what corner of the setting's going on. You don't need to, you know, eat the whole cow. <laughs> and, again, theme comes into what piece of the setting you're doing. So it's interesting you mentioned Guy Gavriel Kay. So, I mean, his big themes are loss and legacy and things like the value of art. And, again, all of those could feed into let's say a bit of fan fiction based on that because I like this in different ways cool cool okay so now we have found something we love some book or similar that we love and we're going to move it into a game Um, and I think we're going to talk at this point about moving fiction into setting we're going to get on in a little bit in a little while about moving fiction into system um, which might be a slightly chunkier section but uh, just I think quickly fiction into setting um josh have you got any kind of more ideas now you've got your 3s system how do you go from your 3s breakdown moving from um fiction into an rpg setting um so if you're focusing on setting if that's the thing that really uh, pushes your buttons then you what you're going to need to decide is are you going to simply replicate the setting that you see in the books um, or are you going to take uh, another slice of the setting that maybe hasn't been shown in the books or uh, on TV I think that's is you can you can do that geographically so if we take the example of um, Game of Thrones you maybe want to run a game you maybe like the Game of Thrones world you don't particularly want to run a high politics game you just want to run a dungeon bash maybe set in that world you could choose a bit of the world that the uh, stories don't focus on, maybe somewhere else, w- elsewhere than Westeros, or a bit of Westeros they haven't looked at. You could choose a bit of the history that, um, you know, Game of Thrones has got this vast um, history that's barely uh, detailed, really. You could go back to the time of Bran the Builder or something, and um, then you've got some freedom to both exist within that setting and use things that your players are going to recognise, but you've also got the ability to make it your own and not worry too much about being perfectly consistent. Alternatively, you could go for the, the, the whole um, expanse of the thing. That's, that is probably eating the whole cow in some sense, but, um, uh, I mean, in a way, why would you want to run a Game of the Thrones game unless you were going to use that vast setting that you've been given? Um, I would be tempted to go for the whole thing and, and do a kind of travelling around type approach cool cool I think that one of the things I've always found quite challenging about these sorts of games um, particularly when you're talking about moving fiction into setting rather than fiction into system is how you handle a situation where as you mentioned earlier Liz you've either got players who don't know the um, the fictional background at all or you have players who know it really 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 well possibly better than you do or, and this is almost a worst case scenario, you've got some people who know it really, really well and who love it, and some people who have never heard of it at all and sort of cut loose in this world that everyone else seems to have all of the, the cultural touchstones of at their fingertips. Have you, got, have you had any kind of thoughts from the games that you've run about how you manage those situations? 
Yeah, so I think the solution to both extremes of that is kind of the same, which is to um, take a setting which feels like the setting that you're building from, but isn't completely the same, and to be clear right from the beginning that um, even if you read every book, you've seen every TV episode, um, you know the whole thing about the front, what you know about that does not necessarily relate into the game. Um, so you could start with a, um, for example, in the Wraithy game, we started with a map. Um, the map, rereading the books later, um, was very confusing because the map in the books is not the same as the map we use. But we started with a map so that everybody had the uh, the basic geography, which is sort of enough to talk about travelling, which is what the game was partly about. Uh, but as long as you change enough details that the people who know the books already aren't going to think, oh, well, I know all of the secrets to this, and also I know much more about what's going on here than you who've never read any of the books. So the setting becomes fresh for everybody. Uh, but making sure at the same time that you seed in enough of the the kind of the look and feel, the, the descriptions, what kind of world we live in. Is it is it high fantasy, shiny, beautiful? Is it kind of gritty and everyone's a bit poor and it smells a bit and um, everyone's kind of grinding to get through? You can bring all of that stuff in with your descriptions as a GM without having to rely on um, player pre-knowledge, I think. Mm. But it takes a bit of work. It's true, and there is absolutely no substitute for giving every single one of your players a 30-page handout for them to read. Yeah, yeah, let's encourage that. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if, you know, they've got jobs and kids yeah, and absolutely. games of their own to write. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to move from um, fiction into setting. Um, and if you've got questions about that, we can come back to that later. Oh, I'm going to start dipping our toe in the water of fiction into system, but I'm only going to go halfway there in the beginning, so I want, um, I'd like to ask Paul to talk about hacking systems that already exist to make them fit the fiction. And I want to ask Paul, because you have written Age of Arthur, which I think is a fate hack of Arthurian mythology. That's, that's correct, yes. Ooh. Well remembered, yeah. <laughs> so in terms of hacking systems, I mean, what you want to do is make sure, firstly, you want to choose a system that's reasonably close to the themes of the setting, reasonably close to, if you like, the level of grittiness of the setting. You know, do characters die or don't they? Or do they always win in fights and things like that? If it's standard adventurous thing, adventurous stuff. And the other thing to think about is probably you have a group of players, so you want to think about what groups of characters do as well as individuals, especially if the book the theme you're doing is not some sort of action adventure of a group of people doing stuff which is probably something we'll turn to later on so in terms of hacks I would say first of all think of what a system does well and what it doesn't do well so if the setting's reasonably gritty you might want to think if you're using you know, a relatively gritty system, maybe some sort of D100 thing. Or if the characters are powerful doing wild and wonderful things, you can use, you know, something like Fate, say, for example. Another thing I'd say is characters can be powerful but vulnerable. You might want to think about how to hack a system to emulate that. And also, don't feel obliged to use your system unaltered or essentially unaltered so again taking Age of Arthur 
there was all sorts changed around and added to. It's recognisably fate. But, you know, there was nothing really very sacred there. Josh, I know you have ideas. Dare I say prejudices for <laughs> hacking games? Uh, Have you got anything you want to add to what Paul has said? Well, so I was actually just listening to what you were saying and thinking, I suppose, at the very start, you need to ask yourself the question, do you want it to feel like that piece of fiction? The fiction is very gritty, say. Um, A lot of the characters die, maybe. But do you want that to be the case in your game? You don't have to do that. You can say, well, I want the setting, but I don't want that feeling of... My character's just going to die every five minutes. Um, so don't, don't feel like you have to do that. Um, however, uh, if, if you do want it to be like, like the fiction, you're probably setting yourself a bigger challenge. Because fiction does things like killing off characters. Uh, it's kind of annoying if you've created your character in a role-playing game and they suddenly die. Fiction does things like focusing on one character for ages and ages and ages without um, introducing... Uh, any any other characters or it does a Game of Thrones thing of flitting between characters and having a long period of time where you don't get to, to be in the spotlight so uh, there's a kind of a game design challenge there and you absolutely can write games which play in that space the game that Becky and I wrote Lovecraft-esque um, sits in that space of there's only one character and, and we solve the problem of how's that going to work by rotating who plays the character so uh, you know, there's one, only one PC. There are NPCs. Yeah, there's absolutely. There's only one, one main character. character absolutely. Um, so I, I guess my point is, you've kind of got a choice. You can choose your favourite game that you feel kind of roughly approximates what you're trying to do, and and then fiddle with it. Or you can produce something that is really laser focused on the experience you want to get from the books, and do a, a hell of a lot of design work to make that happen. Do you have a preference? Uh, I strongly lean in favour of writing a system that's going to deliver the exact experience. I think if you're going to write a game that is based on a particular piece of fiction, um, I don't want to walk into a game that's being sold to me as The Lies of Loch Lamora, say, um, and then find there's absolutely no heists or lying involved <laughs> I'd be, I really I'd want be to play a lot of if that happened so yeah, I really want to write that game well, um, play it. <laughs> well I think I think Blades in the Dark might be that game actually so yeah, very point, much so. Yeah. Uh, the, the point being that you need to uh, you need to uh, you need to su- succeed in delivering the experience that your players think they're going to get if you're going to say I'm running a game set in Loch Lamora but it's just going to be a dungeon bash You've just got to be really clear about that up front, otherwise people will be very disappointed indeed. So I think that we're definitely moving into taking the step of just saying, you know what, there is no system that can do what I really need it to do. I'm just going to write my own, which really isn't quite as terrifying as it sounds, because I think when, when most people hear that, a lot of people think, oh my goodness, have I got to produce, have I got to replicate D&D 5th ed? Uh, there's a lot of content in that but really writing your system I mean it can be anything from D&D 5th ed or even gosh god forbid hero system 5th edition does anybody remember that? (laughs) yeah (laughs) a few people in the room I think or you can go Cthulhu Dark which is a really really good system for running Lovecraft in about two pages I think Mm. so 
there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Now, Liz, I know that you are someone who have written a large amount of custom systems for one-off games based on books. So where, where do you start with a completely custom system? Well, I'm a very, very non-systemy GM. So the reason I write my own systems is I cannot be bothered to learn anybody else's. I cannot be bothered to read through all of that stuff. I'm just not interested. My partner has reams and reams of role-playing manuals. I have not read one of them. I've only bought, I think, three or four in my entire life, so I'm not interested in the system. So I write my own because I'm lazy. Um, and they're all really short, really simple. Um, unless I have a good idea for a way to specifically link the system to the game I'm running, I tend to just do either completely systemless or just something based on percentages or really straightforward. Um, but on occasion, I get a great idea for something to do that links the system to the game. Um, and my sort of Harry Potter-ish inspired game is my favourite example of this. Um, it's Harry Potter-ish because it was about both the characters in the story who were kind of Harry Potter with the serial numbers filed <coughs> off and the actors playing the film adaptation. So it was kind of Daniel Radcliffe and, and Emma Watson and so on with the serial numbers filed off. Um, and some interaction between the two as the barriers between reality breakdown and the big bad becomes more and more powerful. Um, and the system I wrote for that game featured a bag of dice, black and white dice, that players would draw, draw dice from to make their rolls. At the beginning, the players didn't know what kind of balance of dice we had in there. Um, actually, it was mostly white dice to begin with, with a few black dice, and black dice counted negatively towards your end result. And then as the tension ramped up and the big dad became more and more powerful, my co-team and I gradually put more black dice in. And the players could see us putting black dice in, see us replicating the mounting tension with this system thing that was changing as we were. And they were just D6s. It wasn't a complicated system. It was kind of draw three dice, add them up, subtract your black dice, that's your result. Um, very simple probability system. But because we'd hooked this sense of mounting doom in with the system, it was really effective. And that's kind of that's the level of complexity of system. I did some probabilities with it. I had a spreadsheet kind of working out what the levels were and how likely people were to succeed as it got more and more doomy. But it was very, very simple. I think that you've mentioned something which is really key here, which is linking that finding your lodestar, what is it you really love about the game, and then you only need one, you may only need one very simple mechanic to pull that lodestar and make it quite front and centre, really. I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah. Cool, cool. Cool. So, Paul. Yeah, so the lodestar point's an interesting one because, of course, well, Cthulhu Dog and Lovecraft-esque both do that. Naturally, I'm not going to talk to you, lecture you about Lovecraft-esque. That would be the ultimate thing. Be great. Yeah, that would be funny. <laughs> would be mansplaining <laughs> maximum. <Yeah. laughs> Josh, do you want to talk about how it works but, with Lovecraft-esque? Or? Uh, sure. So I, this kind of plays into the question, the, the third of my three S's, sensation. So what, what I mean by sensation is it, it feels like you are in the type of fiction um, that, uh, that you've chosen. So Liz's dice bag example mm. is a perfect example of that. That is, um, it's not about replicating the situation that you're in. It's not about replicating the setting elements. It's about the feeling of rising tension. So Lovecraft Esther, something kind of similar to that. What we wanted was for everybody to feel the sense of unease and uncertainty that you get when reading a mystery book. So 
if you've got a GM and four players, those four players all get to feel the sense of, I don't know what's going on, but the GM knows, so they miss out on that. Lovecraft-esque allows each person to contribute clues towards the story, and then uh, there's a, a cunning mechanic called Leaping to Conclusions, which allows you to keep the uh, mystery from becoming completely incoherent and random, but it means that everyone has the feeling of, I have no idea what's going to be the end of this story, I don't know what's going to, to happen. Is again, it's duplicating that sensation of um, of unease. And another uh, similar approach we took was around allowing people to elaborate uh, dark description on top of everything that is said, so that you get that kind of gothic, uh, slightly overwordy, um, overwrought feel to everything that happens. So I think that. One of the things that we're kind of teasing out is that having a system which supports the thing that you're trying to get everyone to experience is really, really key. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether you're hacking a game to, sorry, hacking an existing system to make that system do that thing, or whether you're creating it from scratch, I think that it's quite clear that that's kind of probably the start of a list of pitfalls that maybe we could go into about where can you fall down when you're trying to turn your favourite fiction uh, into a game. And I just wanted Paul, if you wanted to kind of... Yeah, sure. What is the big pitfall that you see when, when you're trying to achieve this? So, I mean, what... It's too easy to forget, and I have forgotten sometimes, <laughs> is you need to support characters of the kind you see in the, you see in the source fiction. Not your necessarily just, oh, I've got a cool idea of someone who sort of is maybe fits into that setting but is different to anyone in that fiction so you want characters of that kind supported you also want to support the sorts of conflict you see in the source fiction and those are the two main things that you really need to draw out and you want your system to support that Liz, pitfalls I kind of want to follow on to what Paul was just saying about characters so kind of a pitfall that I fell into in a game I ran based on Savriel by Garth Nix um, I'd written what I thought was a, a set of pre characters of the same sort of level of kind of power and connection with the plot but it turned out that either one of the players kind of got the wrong end of the stick or I'd just badly written their character sheet or something and we ended up with one character feeling like they had an awful lot more authority over the world than all of the others did, and basically spending the session bossing the others around. And it was a one-off, and everyone had fun because the people who were being bossed around were kind of enjoyed the experience of being bossed around and kind of role-playing their responses to it. But it wasn't what I'd intended. I'd intended a much more joint-party sort of system. And partly, I guess, that was because of stuff that came from the setting. So the character in question was a military officer in in a world where there, there is at least a bit of an army. And the others were all characters who didn't really know what was going on, and I just, I got it wrong. And my players ran with it in a direction that I wasn't expecting. So that's kind of one of my big pitfalls. No, no I totally understand that. Josh, pitfalls? So, um, a pitfall that I think is, is kind of similar to what Liz is just talking about, but, but different, is the, the danger that there are 
big shot NPCs in your uh, game world who matter far more than the than the players do, mm-hmm. and the risk that you will allow them to trample all over the players. It, it's it's tempting at the best of times to have your NPCs be so awesome that the players <laughs> feel less awesome in comparison. But I think it's doubly tempting if you've got a set that you actually are just itching to um, have a go at playing so that's kind of a risk that uh, that I would point to there's another risk which is around the style of the author that I think you uh, might like to talk about Becky oh my Terry Pratchett (laughs) Mm, I love Terry Pratchett I've been reading his novels since I was about mm, six maybe younger Um, I will never ever play or write a Terry Pratchett role playing game Um, I did toy with it for a while and then I realised that the thing that I really loved about his books was something that was unique to books so that's a pitfall you need to be aware of. Is it, is it actually the thing that you're really enjoying in this book, something that cannot be replicated in the role-playing game? And to, to explain the Terry Pratchett problem, he is witty and funny and clever. And there is no way in hell that I would ever be a good enough GM to say off the cuff the things that Terry <laughs> Pratchett has spent six months crafting to perfection and there is no one else I know who would be a good enough GM to throw in off the cuff things that Terry Bratchett has spent six months crafting to perfection. So one thing to be uh, very careful about looking at is, is the thing that you love about this novel something that you, possibly nobody, is actually capable of producing in a game. So your game experience is always going to fall flat. It's never going to be quite perfect because... When I'm at that table, there is no way I can say the clever thing that Sam Vimes would have said at the right moment at the right time. So that's another thing that I would sort of say to people to watch out for. Um, so I think there's a similar but less pronounced problem um, with a, a, an author I aspire to write the game books of, which is Joe Abercrombie, um, one of my favourite fantasy authors. He manages to make every character in his books feel kind of idiosyncratic and down to earth through this it's just it's a writing style thing and it's he introduces these little sort of stock phrases that they have which they, they repeat from time to time to remind you who they are and i just don't know how you would get a game to to to, to deliver on that unless you had the perfect group of people who were just channeling abercrombie somehow um I will. I will solve that problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, sorry, can I? Yeah, go. I just need to pick up on Josh's um, big, powerful NPC problem um, because a particular issue with YA fiction, and most of my games based on books have been YA um, fiction, um, as you'll have guessed from the examples I've given so far. Um, the particular problem with a lot of YA fiction is that the adults are absent or useless and the kids are forced to go off and solve the problem on their own. And depending on what kind of group of players you've got and kind of how they feel about um, their character motivation and so on, um, it's really easy to get stuck in the bog of throwing problems at them and then going, oh, well, hmm. I go and talk to the teacher about that and see what the teacher says. We're like, no, we're not playing that game. We're playing the game where you go off and solve the plot, not the game where you go and talk to the teacher and then get back to having your angsty relationship with somebody else. We can play Monster Hearts next week, but we're not playing it this week. (laughs) So there's, again, there's the kind of the NPC power problem there, particularly with YA. Well, I'd like to kind of, bring in Paul's view on this because I know that a huge favourite of yours is Tolkien That's right. played a lot of One Ring and the, the good thing about taking Tolkien and glomming it into a role playing game is that uh, it's a party game 
<laughs> is very well set up for it and there's systems out there that already do a pretty good job of it. How has your experience of playing Tolkien and running Tolkien gotten around the problem that why wouldn't Gandalf just whack it with the Okay, stick? so this is a brilliant question. <laughs> so, first of all, coming into one thing, it leads me into a setting thing I wanted to say earlier, but didn't, which is what I really like doing. If I'm using fiction directly for a role-playing game, is setting the game in the blank spaces in this. So if you've got a very well-developed work of fiction, such as, you know, Tolkien's works, there's a huge amount of history, there's a huge amount of geography. If I'm running The One Ring, I don't want to do the quest to destroy the ring. I want to set it in this world, somewhere where there's some recognisable characters, somewhere where there's a nice, you know, gap, whether geographical or historical a blank space where we don't know what's going on in the history. That, to me, is important and gets around a lot of the major issues. I mean, in general, you know, Liz's point, I think this is a general problem for me as GM in an awful lot of role-playing games, which is player characters, something horrible comes up, why don't we just go and tell the relevant authorities? And there's all sorts of answers to that. One would be you can't trust the authorities. One I particularly like is we are the relevant authorities. If you don't deal with this problem, no one will. And that's what I do with, in particular with Tolkien, in these blank spaces. There's no one who's, you know, more capable of dealing with these problems than the player characters. I think what you've said there is actually absolutely essential, particularly if you're doing heroic fiction, is empower your players and make them feel powerful. Because I think there are quite a lot of game systems out there where you're playing characters who are supposed to be heroic and supposed to be really powerful, but the system, for whatever reason, the probabilities or however it manifests, mean that actually you fail so many roles, you feel like, I can't possibly take on this big bad. The GM has explained the big bad in such terms that it has been unconsciously signaled to me that it's above my power level. And so I think there is an element here of how do we, in heroic games, make the players feel empowered so they don't go running off to Gandalf. Do you have some... So, well, I was going to say, Tolkien actually solved this problem himself in an interesting way because um, the, the party of effectively adventurers who were trying to solve the problems in this world did not have a big army at their back, but they needed a big army at their back. So they said, well, we'll go to the people who've got a big army. And they went to... Uh, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> Paul, you should be asking, the, not me. Quickly, Paul, help me. You're thinking of Minas Tirith or uh, Rohan. I, I, I'm thinking <laughs> of the Rohirrim yeah. and uh, the Gondorians. Yeah. And in both cases, Tolkien made it part of the story that these guys have actually kind of uh, need, need some work to get them on side. So he, he effectively... If you had been in his party, you'd been saying, sure, you know, go and get the Gondorians. But uh, guess what? You know, they're mad and um, they're, they're, they're going to go and sacrifice half their army in a futile uh, attack and, and so forth. And then you have to contend with those problems. Brilliant. Cool. OK, well, I was just going to say, has anyone got any last thoughts before we open up for questions to the floor? Any parting shots? No? I'll throw one in then. Expectation clash. What you love about the fiction is not what somebody else loves. So when you're running a game on it, the thing, the lodestar that you have picked, is not the lodestar that somebody else was expecting. Um, 
I think that's a big problem. So there's, a, there's an element of, in all role-playing games, there should be an element of making sure everybody's on the same page, and there's a variety of different tools out there to make sure you can do that. But I think there's a particular gritty element to fiction that we all react to it in different ways, and that's an extra thing I think you need to be aware of if you're studying games in fiction. Okay, now should we have some questions? I've got a, a problem that's uh, not really been mentioned of pacing. Most fiction, I'm, not, I'm no massive reader, but I read quite a few books, and you know, there's variation. But the average role playing game is a bit more plodding, is yeah. it fair to say? You know, there's. Yeah. You don't move through story the same way that you do in a book, so is that something you think about, how the pacing between the two is resolved? I'm going to repeat that for the mics and for everyone else in the room. So it's a question about pacing. The way you experience pacing in a, of a story in a role-playing game is often very different to the way that the pacing happens in a novel. How do you reconcile those that, that mismatch? Does anybody want to leap in? Oh, gosh, <laughs> yes, um, I'm going to uh, be very boring and talk about Lovecraft Task again. Um, but the, I mean, it's just one example of a, an approach that you can take where you actually s- create a structure in your game mechanics to match the structure of the story. So in Lovecraft Task, it's uh, you have between, I want to say, six and eight cl- uh, investigation scenes where you reveal a clue. Uh, they're divided into two sections so that as you get into the second section things get more overt and scary than they were in the beginning and then at the end there's a rapid ramping up of tension and a final confrontation right that just replicates the structure of an hp lovecraft book um similarly you've got fiasco where uh, you have a, a bunch of, of crazy stuff kicking off and then halfway through uh, there is something called the tilt where something even wackier happens and throws everybody's uh, toys up in the air um, I, and that's based on the structure of Cohen Brothers films, isn't it? It is exactly. So you can you can you can kind of force it in that way by just saying, "Well, I'm not going to let you. Uh, if you want to play my game, you you have to follow this scene structure. If you don't like it, screw you." Hearing you say it now makes me think, "Oh, well, I have actually done that. Like, all right, I'm running a 5v game for for my my home group, and I've been coming to a few conventions, and you." It's a whole different ball game. People are trying to fit things into four-hour sessions, and I start thinking, well, I know on a game in the evening, I've got a start point where I know where we left off, and I think of where I might want it to end. Chunk it into half-hour chunks, much like you're saying, sort of almost little chapter things, and then try and hit them way markers so that at the end I can finish up with your your cliffhanger or or whatever, or big reveal, or, or, or something. And um, I guess that's what you're saying, you're, you're breaking down the structure, dividing up, and, and making your, your session fit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so it sounds like, although the Lovecraft-esque and Fiasco is quite an artificial way of doing it in some ways, is you can do it in a more organic way for a more traditional style campaign, as you say, of saying, we've got four hours, in the first half an hour I want to hit these story points, second half an hour I want to hit these story points, last half an hour I want to hit these story points. So It can be tricky with people sort of crying out railroad and stuff like that. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay, maybe. But likewise, not everybody wants to sit around for a half-hour shopping session at the beginning of a thing round town. And it needed it needed to be a railroad. I think you know, both in the case of Lovecraft Esca and Fiasco, there's complete freedom to introduce absolutely anything you want to, as long as it's the type of story that you're trying to tell. It's not like you're trapped on the rails and you are going to have a particular set of things happen to you. It's not like that at all. Um, but but it will be a particular type of thing. Cool. Yeah. So it's, what other questions have we got in the room? Uh, I'm going to st- oh. <laughs> start down there with the gentleman okay. right at the end. Right, uh, so, uh, we'll move around. I'd like to ask if you have any kind of advice or suggestions for researching. So many many fiction uh, settings have been codified in role-play games. You mentioned Tolkien. There have been tons of games uh, set in Middle Earth. For example, I've been rereading uh, *River of London* books uh, with the idea of uh, noting down all the uh, rules of magic and stuff. Uh, they use that. I even tried to uh, persuade Ben Aronovich to uh, make it into a <laughs> formal game, but not like yet. Anyway, so any any advice and suggestions how to research, how to approach researching uh, fiction and specifically uh, inbuilt rules in the setting that you need in. Uh, when building a role-playing game. So I'll just repeat that question for everybody at the back. Um, If you've got a book like The Rivers of London by Ben Aranovich, which has got um, its own intrinsic metaphysical rules that you want to transpose into a system, as well as lots of presumably tasty background, how do you go about starting your research of looking at that book and then starting to codify it into a game? Liz, do you want to...? Yeah. So first up, I really want to play that game, so good luck with that. (laughs) Um, But this reminds me of the process I went through with writing a game based on Sabriel, where in Sabriel there's very definite rules about the kinds of dead creatures you get and what the different... So for those who don't know it, Sabriel is a game about the uh, book, rather, about the borders between life and death, and there are nine gates of death you progress through on your way to dying finally, and the title character um, is effectively a necromancer who can... um, assist evil spirits through those gates or go through the gates to bring back somebody who shouldn't have been there. So there are definite rules in there about how that works. And I started off, I think, from the same sort of position you're in, of thinking, okay, I need to reread all the books, make careful notes, kind of cross-reference everything. And then I ran out of time. Exactly, that's a big problem. <laughs> so actually what I ended up doing is kind of skimming. So I, I picked up the book and I kind of opened it and kind of flicked until I found a bit with some dead creatures or some death, made a few <coughs> notes, flicked a bit more, made a few more notes just enough to get the basic feel and then I filled in the gaps between those just from what seemed to make sense within the general feel and what I wanted to happen in the game which kind of comes back to this was before my theory about making sure you change stuff a bit from the books which I was talking about at the beginning um, but kind of contributed to it because I think if you're if you spend too much time carefully making notes about every little detail a that's kind of tedious and boring and much more fun to just read them for fun or to get on with writing and playing the game Um, but b it makes it a bit difficult when you're managing your player expectations about how well they know the world so much better to just pick the bits that leap out at you and then just join the dots in the way that makes sense and not worry too much about being slavishly accurate to books would be my advice i'd also think that you can think of it more as a 
when television adaptations happen of books and film adaptations, and we all like to complain about the scenes they left out and why wasn't Tom Bombadil in the Lord Not of the all Rings of us. movie? No, no. But often they've made those decisions for good reasons to suit the new format, and maybe part of what you need to do is to make some kill your author's darlings <laughs> yeah. and make some hard decisions about what to keep and what to cut um, to make it work in a role playing context. I'm just shivering because it's freezing. <laughs> so can, can I say something back here? Yeah, on that? please. Which is, I mean, in a role-playing game setting, there's a difference between something you do, you're doing for your personal use based on a game, where you're based on a book, based on a, book a game based on a game. That would be easy. <laughs> no, that's not good. I want to do that now. Yeah. It's a game. But a game, a game based on a book. You're <coughs> choosing the things you want to emulate, and again, my answer to the question would be pick and choose what sort of stuff you really want. But there's a difference between doing that and, for example, writing an official licensed RPG for other people. We are not talking about writing an official licensed RPG for other people here. We're talking about how to build stuff for our own use, which is a lot easier. (laughs) But, I, I mean, I think even for that, Liz's approach would probably work of... Uh, taking the exemplars and thinking how can I write a system that's going to feel like that it doesn't necessarily have to be exactly what the author had in mind I'm going to take another question now Um, I know that you've been waiting for a while Uh, what's your question? my biggest disappointment in most RPGs is the character scene and I think it's the thing that puts you in the same place it helps you to set it helps you feel there's a lot of thoughts in it, a lot of games, but it seems to be written for the person who reads the book and not for who you put in the hands of the players. When, when do you start thinking about the character scene and how much real thought do you put in it designing that character scene? Oh, me, me. Sheet. 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 Oh, okay. So this is a question about how much thought you put into designing the character sheet and what the character sheet presumably would look like if you're translating from the book. Is there anyone on the panel who yes, wants to jump yes, in? Yes, I want to jump in about that. <laughs> I put loads of thought into designing my character sheet. Sometimes it's the first thing I do, and often it's the thing that takes the longest out of the stuff that I actually give to the players. Um, and this isn't actually a, a book-inspired example, um, but I ran a game um, called Terrible Things, which is a terrible game, actually, but <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Uh, about a group of characters um, who were partly going to school and doing some things. And I designed the character sheet as their school report. So I had their name at the top and a series of school subjects with dots. And I think I was writing something vaguely storyteller-based because at that point I was still just kidding myself that I was interested in running actual systems. Um, but it was it's always important to me to make my character sheets look like something about the feeling of the, the whole game. I think that's massively important. And it, it always endears me to a GM as a player as well if I get a character sheet that looks like it looks like it belongs. Um, I'm not interested in the, the general standard kind of insert your skills here, just tick a box. And that's boring. Why would you even bother? If you're doing that, don't even bother with a character sheet. But then, as I said, I'm not very systemy. I think we've got time for one more question at the back. Um, so what if your fiction that you're trying to replicate in game form doesn't have a single qualifying piece of work? So uh, um, to use Metro 2033 as an example, there's about 30 different books in that, uh, in that series written by a plethora of different authors. Each one of them turns from a heist to horror to action to whatever. 
Um, and you need to read them all, really, to distill the essence of the fiction that you're trying to work on. So how do you start with a work that's so massive and so uh, different to itself? So I'm just going to repeat that question so everyone can hear. So what do you do when you've got a world which is huge, which, uh, you say Metro 2030? 2033. 2033, um, which has a large number of books, all written by different authors, maybe some different genres. How do you, when you, when it's so vast, how do you start distilling that down? And I kind of like, I'd like to ask that question to Paul, <laughs> having, having written a game based on Arthurian myths, which again are very, very sprawling with many different authors. How did you approach that? So, okay, to take, to pick on Age of Arthur again, what I wanted, first thing to look at is what was my take on Arthurian myth? And straight away I went for thinking, okay, it's some sort of post-Roman Dark Ages Britain rather than sort of Mallory's high medieval take. And then I thought, well, what, if, what about this? You've got this standard story with Arthur and Lancelot and how are the players involved? And I thought, no, this is a story of petty kingdoms where the whole island's under threat from an external force. So I came to that from to player characters being the high advisors of one of the petty kings, if you like, the knights of that round table. So my advice there would be think of what you want to do with that setting ahead of the setting. So looking at the setting, you're thinking, oh, great, I can do these cyberpunk heists. Is that one of the things you want to do? May even make a list. You don't have to be completely narrow and focused. But think of a few, <coughs> one thing or a few things you want to do and then proceed that way. Well, that's what I'd do. Josh, have you got an alternative? I don't know if it's an alternative. I, mean, I think it goes back to what we said at the start about choosing your oh, load. No, I'm afraid that we've got, we're out of time now. So I think that, uh, two-minute wrap-up? Or one minute. One minute wrap up. <laughs> okay, very quickly, what's everybody working on? Liz? I'm working on a game based on a non fiction book actually called Blue Stockings, which is about the first women students in Oxford. Great. Paul, what are you working on right now? I'm working on doing more things for the Mind Jammer role playing game and bringing out my book on called Beyond Red Portals, which is world hopping fantasy. Fabulous. Josh, what are you working on right now? I'm working on a game called Flotsam, which is about a group of misfits, outcasts and renegades living in the belly of a space station, exploring their interpersonal relationships. Also, you can buy Lovecraft Desk from me if you want to. It's just here. <laughs> Becky, what are you working on right I'm now? I'm working on Bite Me, which is a game about sexy werewolf novels. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you've got comments, we'd love to hear them. We're on the web and on social media. Details at victorplasm.net. Until next time, bye. Bye.